the greatest declaration of any of our lives is that we have been crucified with Christ and that we no longer live, but that he lives in us. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter one as we continue our journey through this incredible Bible book focusing on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. We'll find ourselves this morning in Colossians one verses 19 to 23. While you're taking just a moment to find those verses in your Bibles, how many of you have rented anything from an Airbnb? That's a deal, right? We don't do hotels anymore. We do Airbnb and vacation rentals and rent people's houses. Some of you that have done that have figured out you got to be careful when you do that. The pictures don't always tell you what it actually looks like. Um, me and a group of guys rented one in northern Alabama to go fishing one time. We show up at the house, it looks all right from the outside, and we walk in, and when I tell you the entire place was decorated in Elvis decor, I didn't know they made these. There was a toilet seat with Elvis's picture on the toilet seat, full-size Elvis cutout, Elvis bedspread, Elvis's picture were on the sheets. It was on, on everything, wallpaper Elvis, Elvis coffee mugs and everything. Now, I, don't get me wrong. Elvis is a Mississippian. I'm all for Elvis, but you can get enough of Elvis real quick every time you turn around. Another time, we, we rented another one, another fishing trip. Looked fine from the outside, walked in, and I'm not kidding you, the ceilings were six and a half feet tall. Now, I'm not a tall guy. I'm right at six feet if I stand right straight up. But the whole time you walked around the house like this, because it felt like you were going to run in every door frame. You had to duck to get under. And I thought, we got to be a little more careful about this. But I read about one this week. This is one of the wildest things I've ever heard. There's an Airbnb in northern Kansas. You can rent it if you want to. They converted a missile base that used to hold a nuclear bomb in northern Kansas. They took that and they have now converted it. It had a warhead in it and now it's an Airbnb. It's called Subterra Castle. And you can actually go and stay in a missile silo from renting it from an Airbnb. And I got to thinking about that and I thought people were talking about how wonderful it was and how much they enjoyed their stay and how beautiful it was. But there's something a little odd about spending the night in a place that held a nuclear warhead. That's just strange. And so I got to thinking about it. And, and when we think about what it takes, the, the renovation that it takes and all the things that go along with that to try to make this place not look like a missile silo anymore and start looking like somewhere that you'd want to spend the night. You know, we celebrated this morning, and we celebrated with two young people. When Harper and Ella got baptized, we celebrated because they've been crucified with Christ. And they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. You celebrated today because as you sung out, you believe that you have been crucified with Christ if you were redeemed, if you were reconciled. I want you to think about what took place to make your life livable for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It wasn't just an Airbnb that got redone, but everything about you had to be able to house the person and work of Christ because your life and your heart and your soul were unlivable. So as we walk through Colossians, one of the beautiful themes about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is his power to reconcile men to God. And that is the focus of our time together today, what reconciliation looks like. You remember that Paul's writing this letter 
and, and the heresy has not taken place in the church yet. They haven't bought in, but there are false teachers. And as the false teachers come, he wants to write this as a preventative letter. And one of the things he's preventing against is that they teach that Jesus was just one of many spirit beings. And because he was just one of many spirit beings, that means they denied the incarnation, that Jesus was in the flesh. And when you deny the incarnation, what do you also deny? You deny his ability to redeem or to reconcile men to God. So salvation by faith alone through Christ alone, all of that would be wiped out. And so as Paul writes to today, what we're going to see is this theme of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ is going to shine out because we're going to see today that Jesus Christ is again supreme and sufficient this morning in his ability to reconcile men to God. Let's discover that together as we read Colossians chapter 1. We begin in verse 19 together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Lord, show us again today through your word, your supremacy, your sufficiency, specifically this morning in your ability to reconcile men to God in Jesus name and all God's people said please be seated so that is our big idea you see that on the screen this morning that Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient in his ability to reconcile men to God. Now, when we use the word reconciliation, it means that once you were alienated, once you were an enemy, once you were far from God, there was a time when you could, were not a friend of God, that you were separated by a chasm of your sin that was not able to be crossed. And so there had to be reconciliation. God had to bring you back so that you could have a relationship with him. So that's going to be the dominant thing that pushes us this morning. And to help us understand it, we're going to ask four very simple questions that this text answers. Number one, Number one, who is reconciled? Who is reconciled? If, if we're going to understand reconciliation, we need to understand who is reconciled. When we start in verse 19 together, it talks about God being pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. We're talking about the incarnation that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Remember that phrase, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So who is reconciled? All things. Very good. All things. Now, that's an interesting word when it says all things. We need to understand a little bit about the biblical history, and you've got to go all the way back to the beginning, because when God created the heavens and earth, was everything reconciled to him? 
Absolutely. Everything was perfect. It didn't have to be reconciled because it was in right relation. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall takes place and the curse falls not only on mankind, but the curse falls on all of creation. So from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22, what you've got in the story is God's story of redemption or God's story of reconciliation. It's the reconciliation of all things. You don't have to look very hard to tell that this world is marred by sin, that this world has fallen, that the creation is fallen, that people are fallen, that wickedness and evil, that they persist everywhere. And what we know from reading our Bible is that is not going to get better. That is going to continue to get worse. In fact, it's going to culminate at the end of the age. The Bible tells us there's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation. And during that literal seven-year tribulation, hell on earth is going to break loose and the marred creation, the fallen earth is going to express itself very vividly in the most vivid way possible as wickedness reigns supreme and the wrath of God is doled out and the trumpets and the bowls and you read about all of these signs that take place during that time. But then we know that immediately following that tribulation well, the greatest most anticipated event in world history is going to take place because Jesus Christ is going to return to earth. When Jesus Christ returns to earth we are told that he will institute a millennial or a literal thousand year reign. It is during that thousand year reign that all things that we see them beginning to be reconciled, reconciled in a way as sin is no more and Satan is vanquished and placed away and chained and there's a thousand years of peace on earth. But that's not the complete reconciliation because the complete reconciliation doesn't come until Satan and all the, and all the demons of hell are unbound. Do you remember? And there is this great battle of Armageddon. I say great, but Jesus Christ is going to wipe the floor with them. After that, what we know is there is going to be fire that is going to fall on the earth and the earth and the heavens are going to be destroyed. And at that moment, there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth and all things will be reconciled unto Christ. It will be a day and age in which there will be no more crying and no more tears and we will see that holy city, Jerusalem, and all things will be reconciled unto himself. But unfortunately, there are liberal commentators that try to take all things in this particular verse and make that mean universalism, that all will be saved. Now, does the Bible teach anywhere that universalism or that everyone is going to be saved? Absolutely not. Jesus made that very clear. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Acts 4 and 12, Peter declares, for their salvation is found under no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be saved. The Bible makes that very clear. So when it says all things, you need to understand that all things, everything is not going to be redeemed, but everything will be reconciled unto God. And to help you understand that, what we know is, is that all of the redeemed, if you are blood-bought, purchased, justified, born again, if that is true of you, then you are reconciled to God. But even those that are sent to hell, even those that experience the wrath of God will be reconciled to God, not in the way of redemption, but because God's punishment will be justly doled out upon them all and God will punish them for their sins. Hence, there is reconciliation of all things because God is Lord of the universe. And so we understand this text and we understand that it helps us to understand that, that in, in a very real sense, that for us to understand our reconciliation, you have to understand what you were before God did what only God could do for you. And you find that in these verses. Verse 21, that's about as clear as it gets. 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Now the word there in the NIV is because of, but probably the, the better word would be expressed because you expressed your evil behavior. You are enemies in your mind and it expresses itself in evil behavior. Before you were reconciled to God, you know that you had no friendship with God. You and God were not okay. They're the delusion of the age is Satan convincing the minds of people that me and God are good without Jesus. The amount of interviews that are done right now that people ask, how's your relationship with God? And people will say, I think me and God are good. And we need to help people to understand that without Jesus, you and God are not good. You are not reconciled to God. You are not forgiven. In fact, there's a chasm that separates you from God that you cannot cross. You are not heaven bound. In fact, you are hell bound. The judgment of God is going to fall on you if you are not redeemed by the blood of the lamb, if you have not called on the name of Christ. And so we, we make that point clearly because we want people to know that the problem that people have is not a problem of ignorance, but it is a problem of willful sin. The reason that people choose their sin instead of Jesus is because they love their sin more than they love Jesus. Sometimes I think that many of you, I, I thank God for this, you have a lot of church background. Many of you have been in church for a lot of your life. Many of you have been in VBSs from the time you were small to, to now. You, you've been to youth camps and disciple nows. You've sat under preaching, and I'm thankful for that. But, but here's, here's the potential danger in that, is that for you to think that you are pretty good, that, that I'm a pretty good person, but everyone was alienated from God because of their sin. None of us could get it right. I found it interesting, and some of you will try this this afternoon because you'll think uh, there's no way that's true. You'll try this this afternoon. I'd love to have videos of you trying to do this. You know, they took a bunch of test subjects recently, and they blindfolded them, completely blindfolded, put them in an open space, and they told them to walk in a straight line. They did this experiment over and over and over again. Hundreds of people. Do you know how many people blindfolded can walk in a straight line? What percentage of people? Zero. Some of them, the furthest anyone got was 20 feet. And after 20 feet, what began to happen was everyone circled back to the place that they started without even realizing it. Now, I've seen some of you drive and some of you think you can drive without looking outside. You can't, they've tried it with driving in open parking lots. They've tried it with swimming to see if maybe people could do it in water. You could, can't do it there either. And every time, eventually the person will circle back to the place that they started. And the reason I point that out to you is you don't even have the physical ability to walk a straight line. You certainly don't have the spiritual ability outside the reconciliation power of Jesus Christ to do anything on your own. So let's be real careful, though, to understand this reconciliation process. So often I think we, we misunderstand it because of, of the way we, we explain it. And we talk about reconciliation, you said, and people will say things like, well, me and God made an agreement, or I, I, I reached out to God. Reconciliation is a one-sided reconciliation. You did not reconcile yourself to God. God reconciled you to Him. 
God had to be the initiator of that or you would have never been redeemed. You'd have never found friendship with God. So when you ask, what did I do in the salvation process? What, I, what, what am I responsible for? Lean in close. Absolutely nothing. All you brought was your wretched depravity and your sin. So who's reconciled? All of those who are redeemed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second question. Not just who is reconciled, but how were we reconciled? How were we reconciled? Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. By Christ's physical body through death. How were we reconciled? Through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Let me remind you from the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a bloody event. When you read about what took place in the Old Testament and the amount of sacrifices and, and, and the irrigation that had to have been done so that tunnels of blood could come out of the holies of holies and the holy places, things were sacrificed there. And we see that all of these sacrifices that were given, that they were, that it was a blood sacrifice. Now, I I think this goes without saying, but but I don't want to take anything for granted. The blood that came out of these animals. These animals were killed. It wasn't just that they were bloodletted. It was that the blood was taken out of them because they were slaughtered. So when we talk about blood sacrifice, the reason there is power in the blood is because there was death. The blood represents life, and when the blood pours out of something, the life pours out of something. So when we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. When we talk about the blood, we're not just talking about that Jesus gave of his blood. It is that his blood represented that Jesus' own life was taken there on the cross. Blood always refers to death, sacrifice, and the substitution of Christ. So, just curious, how much sin do you think that God could allow into heaven? Like, I mean, like 1%, 0.5? Well, what about point? Oh, five percent. Could God allow that amount of sin into heaven? I think you know the answer to that. The answer is absolutely not. You know, when they, they test Olympic a athletes for PEDs or performance enhancing drugs, the only acceptable number is zero. If there are any markers of PEDs, then you aren't allowed into the Olympics. And when it comes to understanding what God will allow into heaven, zero is the number. Zero. That's zero sin. And so I think we could understand that because we've talked a lot over the last several years about virology and immunology and all the things that go into that with everything that's going on in our culture. And every one of you are familiar with a blood transfusion and what that would look like and why you would have to have that. But I want to I want to just run something by you. Let's say that for whatever reason, God forbid that you needed a blood transfusion. 
and you showed up at the hospital tomorrow to get your blood transfusion, and the doctor said, he came in there with a bag of blood, and he said, listen, we're about to give you a blood transfusion, but just before you do, I want you to know that there's, a, there's just a little bit of virus in this blood. You'd say, you ain't putting that in me. He'd say, no, no, you don't understand. It's like 99% pure blood. Like only 1% of it has virus in there. Only 1% of it's infected blood. The rest of it's fine. And you'd say, absolutely not. I can't have it. Why? Because blood with any taint is tainted blood. It's not clean. And so when we talk about the blood of Christ replacing us and washing over us, what we're saying is, is that no matter how righteous you think you are, you've got tainted blood. You've got a tainted heart. You've got a tainted soul. So we come before the Lord and we recognize that we need His blood. You know, they're actually doing new forms of transfusions now that, 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 that through a lot of what we've learned, they've learned that if someone is struggling with a disease, they, they learned this with um, Ebola in Africa, that, that they can actually give transfusions to that person and they can use the blood of someone who has already survived that disease and is now better to put their blood into the person who is struggling and it is amazing the results they're receiving. Why? Because the antibodies have already been built up and you're replacing bad blood with blood that has already developed the immunity to that. Here's what's so incredible about thinking about Christ Jesus becoming your redeemer and your reconciler and your friend is that now what we celebrated with Harper and Ella this morning is that it is not their tainted blood that runs through their soul, but it's the blood of Jesus and it's pure and it's absolutely without defect and without sin and without flaw. What a beautiful picture that is. In March of 2018, a lone gunman went into a French grocery store and he took several people hostage. When Arnold Beltrain, a French police officer, did what to many of us would be unthinkable. He offered to trade places with the hostages during the standoff. And the hostage taker actually took the deal. He took Arnold hostage and let the rest of the hostages go. And I'd love to tell you that the rest of the story was some beautiful story, but let me tell you what ended up happening. That hostage taker ended up killing Arnold Beltram, and he died in that French supermarket. But he died because he was willing to give his life because someone else had been taken hostage. You have been taken hostage by sin. You have been taken hostage. And it was that Jesus Christ came and he said, I give my life. Now, what's so amazing about this incredible passage is when you go back to 19, it says for God, it's talking about the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him or in Christ. And I can't help but think about, and as we should, we focus so much on the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, right? And that his blood was spilled and that his body was broken and that he was placed in the borrowed tomb. And I think we should obviously focus on that. But I don't think we need to miss this, that all the while that that was taking place, 
that there was a father in heaven who was allowing it to take place, and that was his only son, one and only, only begotten of the father is what the Bible tells us. I cannot get my mind around that. Some of you have experienced untold tragedy with children. I don't pretend to understand that pain, and I pray to God I never do. But even watching mine go through minor issues and problems, illnesses, broken bones, I know in the midst of that, when I look down, I always thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard when I was little, that if I could take that from you, if I could take that pain, if I could take that hurt, I would take it so you wouldn't have to go through it. I get that now. And that's not because I'm some radically wonderful parent. Every one of you that are looking at me right now are nodding your head because that's what being a parent is. And if you and I feel that way, how much more would the father feel that way? And so as he looks down with every ability to stop it, there is a love that took place because God reconciling us to himself cost more than we can possibly comprehend. That is how we were reconciled. But the third question, and a very important question, why are we reconciled? Why are we reconciled? The second part of 22 answers that question. The reason that we were reconciled is so that we may be presented holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You know that the word holy, we've talked about that a lot. The word holy means separated, separated from sin and set apart to God without blemish. Uh, that's a, a word, that, that's a synonym for holy, but that describes specifically a spotless lamb, one who was perfect to be able to be offered as a sacrifice. And then we see this beautiful little phrase. In fact, for some of you today, this could be a breakthrough through phrase, a phrase that you ought to highlight or write in the sides of your Bible. The words are free from accusation. Did you see that? Free from accusation. If you are reconciled, if you are redeemed, if you're justified, if you're born again, if God has made you a brand new person in Christ, then watch this. You are now free from accusation. Now, who would accuse you? Satan accuses you, certainly. And, and he's been pretty successful, even for some of us who are redeemed. A lot of us, the reason we don't have any victory in our life is because we believe the lies of Satan instead of the truths of God. And you're allowing lies to come into you to make you feel like that somehow you are not able to serve the Lord and you're not able to worship the Lord or you're not able to pray or you're not able to read the Bible or you're not able to serve the church or you're not able to sing or whatever the lies are you've bought into because you have believed the accusations when the Bible says that because of your reconciliation, you're free from accusation. Not only does Satan accuse you, but for some of you, even your flesh accuses you. You're constantly in your own mind. You're battling your own mind all the time. You're thinking about who you were all the time. And you're allowing who you were to determine who you are and who you're going to be. And the Bible says you're free from accusation. And you need to focus on, you say, well, I don't feel that way. I don't feel free from accusation. I've told you this a thousand times and you're going to hear it a thousand more. Quit focusing on how you feel and start focusing on what you know. The Bible says you're free from accusation. 
You don't have the right to supplant the Bible's authority in your life. So we meet our flesh head on. We meet Satan head on. We meet the world head on. You said, you, you, maybe some of you are thinking right now, but I got a lot of people in my life that are, that are haters and they, they, they remind me of things and, and they, they, they take that and they, they try to use that. And they're people that are, that are bringing those accusations. Let me tell you something. You can either listen to the voice of people or you can listen to the voice of God. But the height of foolishness is to listen to a fool. The height of foolishness is to listen to a fool. And some of you need to get some new voices in your ears. You're free from accusation is what the Bible says. You're free from accusation. It's the only way you'll overcome the accuser. And you're holy and with your outblemish and you're free from accusation in his sight. This is an amazing spiritual truth because if you are redeemed, if you are reconciled, if you're born again and justified, if you've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God, then what that means is, is that those that have been reconciled are seen now just as they will be seen in heaven. Let me, let me say that again because I don't want you to go out of here and miss that because some of you, when we get kind of towards the end, you might fade on me a little bit. You are seen, if you're saved, you are seen now just as you will be seen in heaven. It means that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that somehow through God's miracle of substitutionary sacrifice, His miracle, the propitiation of God, the atonement of God on your life, that now when God looks at you, instead of seeing your sin, instead of seeing that, what God sees is the righteousness of His own Son because it clothes you. You now bear the skin of God's righteousness flowing over you. And so when you understand that, Part of the reason that a lot of people don't grasp sanctification is they don't grasp that even now you are holy. It doesn't mean you always act holy, amen? But you are holy. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is simply the process, the spiritual life growing in practice to become in reality what we already are before God. I'm being sanctified. I'm becoming more like the reality that I already have before God. That's why we were reconciled. And then fourth and finally, what is the proof of reconciliation? What is the proof of reconciliation? Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to, you, to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What is the proof of reconciliation? The proof of your reconciliation, the proof of your salvation, the proof of your discipleship is if you continue. Now you say, Larry, we're Baptists. We believe once saved. Amen. Once truly saved always truly saved. But how do we know that people are truly saved? I have this conversation, if not monthly, it, certainly a couple of times a quarter with somebody that, that they'll take on that, that one of the problems that they have with the Baptist doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or for some of us once saved, always saved, 
is, so you're telling me that somebody can walk an aisle and get baptized and then say, and say they got saved and then live however they want to live and doesn't matter what they do, that they are, they're saved anyway. I don't believe that. And you shouldn't believe that either. Verse 23 answers that question. If you continue. So what do we know? We know that Jesus says that it is the proof is in the fruit of our lives, right? If we continue walking in faith, if we continue in those things, not that we're earning it because we never earned it, but it is the display of what salvation has done in our life. It's what Luke 8 talks about, the parable of the souls. Some people call it the parable of the sower. It's better known as the parable of the souls. The, there is some seed that lands in good soil, right? And it's not because there's just a few days of emotion. It doesn't get choked out by weeds. It doesn't get choked out by the pressures of life. But what we see is that it maintains and that it grows. 1 John 2.19, it says, They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Now, isn't that pretty simple? How do we know that these people John's talking about aren't saved? They were with us. They made a decision. But then after a while, they left us, and they're not of us anymore. And if they were still of us, they would have remained with us. What is the proof of your salvation? If you continue to walk in faith with the Lord. And then Paul gives the greatest reminder, the greatest reminder. He says that you aren't moved from this hope that was held out in the gospel, and this is the gospel that you heard and is proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul talks about this being the only true gospel. He knows that there are false teachers on the horizon. Well, you need to be reminded 2,000 years later, there are false teachers on the horizon. And just because someone uses the name Jesus or even uses the word gospel or just because they talk about the cross does not mean that you buy into it hook, line, and sinker if it is not the biblical gospel of by grace, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And when we grasp that, we understand that we hold on and we hold on with everything that we are to that gospel. In fact, Paul said in Galatians that if someone preached any other gospel, what should happen to them? Let them be accursed, is what Paul said. So what that means is, is that there needs to be a purity to the gospel. This gospel of reconciliation, there must be a purity to it. And inside that purity of that gospel, that you recognize that we don't veer to the right and we don't veer to the left, that we stay right in line with the scriptural authority of what it teaches about the identity of Christ, the reconciliation and redemption of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all of it, the things that the Bible so accurately depicts, we recognize that is what makes up the gospel. You need to listen with a discerning ear because it wasn't just 2,000 years ago that there were wolves in sheep's clothing. You got saved by the purity of the gospel of Christ. Don't allow it to be diluted with any other form of gospel because if it's any other form, what Paul says, it's really no gospel at all. Now, if we understand reconciliation and we understand that what that really looks like is that God comes in and takes over our life, that now we are now fit not to be a missile silo that's full of sin, but we are fit to be what? We are fit to house the person of Christ as we ask him to take over and take control of our life. 
So if that's what takes place and we understand that, that you and I can be reconciled and we understand how that we're reconciled through the spilled blood and broken body of Christ and we understand why we're reconciled, that we would be presented before God spotless and blameless and holy, free from accusation. And we understand that our lives are walking, talking, living proofs of that reconciliation. Then here's a really obvious question. Why wouldn't you want to be reconciled to God? Why? I mentioned an act of foolishness. One of the greatest acts of foolishness that I know is to hear the gospel clearly proclaimed to you and then reject it. You are men and women, you are students, without excuse. The gospel is clear. And... Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we implore you, word means beg, we beseech you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. If you have been reconciled to God, then thank God you have. Thank God you've given your life to Him and you have every reason to praise Him because He did for you what you could have never done for yourself. Maybe it is that you need to give your life to Christ or maybe it is that you need to become a part of a church that preaches the gospel and understands the reconciliation of God. Or maybe it is today that as we sing in this invitation, there's somebody in here that's just super thankful that they're reconciled. There's someone in here that's super thankful that they're redeemed. There's someone in here who is super thankful for what God has done and you simply need to bow your knee or you need to lift your head towards the Lord and praise Him and thank Him for what he has done for you. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for your reconciling power, and we recognize that we are in desperate need of it. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus, we no longer have to be enemies, but Lord, we have been made friends of God by your shed blood on the cross. So Lord Jesus, as we bow before you now, I pray that we would respond to what you have done to that pure, beautiful gospel. And that, Lord, for those of us who are redeemed, that we would stand fast in our faith, that we would pursue you with all of our heart, and that, Lord, we would recognize that you are worthy. Lord, as we respond now, I pray that the reconciled of God would lift up this song to you, that they would remind themselves of how beautiful it is to be able to declare that they have decided to follow Jesus. But, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you made, it, you made us able to be able to follow you through what you've done for us. So we celebrate you now in Jesus' name. Amen.